if I had to say anything, I would just say, love yourself. That made the hugest impact on my life, knowing that, you know what, you are worth it. You do deserve to be here. You do have value and you can create impact. Your story, just like my story, could impact someone else's life. So don't give up. If you're sitting in the dark, reach out. There's so many places, so many um, places online, phone calls you can make. I think 211. And if you feel alone, message me. I will sit. I, I say to everybody, I will come and sit in the dark with you as long as you need me to. And when you are ready, I will pick you up and help you step into the light. So don't ever feel alone. You're not alone. Do you need encouragement to turn tragedies into your own triumphant life story? If so, this podcast is for you. Listen to powerful guests who have persevered through challenges so you can gain strength to build your championship life. The host of Professor of Perseverance podcast, Dr. James Perdue. Hey, 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 come on in again today. It's time for the Professor of Perseverance podcast. Thank you for coming in. I am the Professor of Perseverance himself, Dr. James Purdue, here to give you another guest that's going to share their powerful, inspirational story, their journey, how they overcame adversity, persevered, kicked triumphants in the butt, and moved on, letting us know that life is worth living no matter what we go through. All right. I know some people struggle more than others, and I'm sorry for that. I know some people get bigger struggles than others. Sorry for that. But again, the message is still the same. We're going to provide hope, encouragement, motivation, inspiration to let you know, hey, move on, do the best you can, and let's go. All right. Now, her journey, man, she would share her journey, how she overcome family, childhood sexual abuse, domestic violence mental health struggles, and as she went from two days away from ending her life, she attended a woman's workshop where she finally understood self-love is the true key to happiness, and now she has created her own women's empowerment workshop as a way to help other people. Welcome to the show, Charlene Madden. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good morning, everybody. Oh, thank you for coming on again, sharing your valuable time, because we know the time is valuable. And uh, for you to get out there, help other people. You know, that mm-hmm. I think that's I'm not the only reason we're on this big ball of dirt, but uh, one reason I think we ought to be able to help people as much as possible. Makes it much, uh, much worth being here. That's for sure. We can we can provide some blessings and blessings can come back to us. So Absolutely. All right, uh, Charlene, again, thank you for being here. And um, I'm giving you the platform to take over. And you just start where you need to go and we'll interject every now and again. All right. Um, Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for having me. Um, My story begins at a very young age. Um, I was born into um, a family. I was the youngest of four siblings. Um, the family I was born into was extremely dysfunctional. My father was a very violent alcoholic. And at the age of three, my parents separated. Um, my mom took my uh, older brothers. My sister and I stayed with my dad. Um, unfortunately, being such a severe alcoholic, he was in no position to care for two young 
girls. So he contacted my um, uh, maternal grandparents, my mother's parents, and asked if they would take us in. And my grandmother, without skipping a beat, said, absolutely, I will take the girls. Went to live with my grandparents. Uh, my grandmother was an absolutely awe-inspiring woman in my life. Uh, she, I think, was far ahead of her time, very much into women's uh, empowerment herself. Wanted to see women get educated because she had a very limited education, I think grade four, grade five. So education was extremely important to her. And she always instilled to be independent, to look after yourself, because that was the only person you had to depend on. And I think I learned that lesson well, maybe too well in my life. Um, my grandfather, on the other hand, was a pedophile. And uh, both my sister and I experienced uh, over nine years of sexual abuse at his hands. Um, when I was 12, my sister was older. Uh, she was 16. Um, her being older, she experienced a lot more of the um, abuse than I did as being the younger one. Um, but at the age of uh, 12, it all came out and everything changed in my life. My grandparents divorced. Um, my grandmother, my sister and I went to live in uh, kind of low income housing. And that was the life that I was brought into or uh, came into. And I remember one of the important memories, anchor memories that I have of that time is sitting in the social services office after it came out and having the social worker kind of pat me on the back saying, you know, you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And that was basically it. There was no real follow-up. There was no intensive counseling or therapy that just, we're talking the eighties. So it wasn't a thing that happened. It was more of a, you know, we lived in a small town, so it was more of a kind of just swept under the carpet. Let's just move on and forget that this ever happened. Well, and, it's, it's um, amazing. Even in the 80s, that they, they, they've had to have statistics, you know, that showed the uh, the mental abuse, emotional mm -hmm. abuse uh, concepts of, you know, that they needed to get some, that they know that children needed counseling mm -hmm. to let them open up and, and, and experience. So. Oh, that's amazing. It's still in the 80s that they were hiding it that bad. Uh -huh. So uh, let me ask one question here is um, you said up till 12 is when everything finally blew up. Did you not? Did your sister not say something to grandmother? Did grandmother not believe you? Did grandmother try to say something to him? And I mean, we're just finally at 12. Like you said, it finally just blew up. Um, I believe my sister had said something to my grandmother and. Um, I don't know whether it was not believed or whether it was she confronted my grandfather and he denied it. Um, I know personally, I did not say anything. And when I reflect back on it, um, having come from my my um, family where, you know, my parents, I felt both gave us or, gave, you know, gave me away. I didn't want to be given away. I didn't want to be sent away. Mm -hmm. And I think it was in the back of my mind that if I said anything that I might be sent away. And at that point, my grandmother was the only anchor that I had. Yes. Um, she was the only person I felt I could, uh, that loved me and I, and I could depend on. So and it, I, it's understandable. Yes. At a child mm -hmm. at that age, you don't want to break the family up, want to mm -hmm. be with uh, mom and dad, still grandparent, you know, mm -hmm. and wouldn't want to be, yeah, that's, that's very understandable. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it didn't. Um, and I mean, even when it came out, um, you know, you live in a small town, you know, my, my aunts and uncles lived in the town, all my cousins lived in the town. And I remember it being 
you know, I remember hearing stories of them even at that point thinking that it was us just trying, you know, we were troubled kids. We had come from a broken home. We were just trying to cause trouble. We were just trying to get attention. And really, that was the last thing I wanted. I didn't want attention. I didn't want. Oh yeah, no, nobody, no child wants the attention, especially, especially of this caliber. Yeah, because I mean, everybody knew, you know, so now I, you know, I came, now I'm now the child that came from the broken home to Mm -hmm. the child who's been sexually abused for almost a decade. Um, Yes. And so going on, you know, into life. And I mean, at 12, I'm going into high school, you know, the next year. So I'm already struggling with the transitions of, of that coming into being a teenager and the emotions. And I, um, I go into high school and one of my outlets was always writing. Um, I always said that I, I spilled ink onto paper rather than blood because it was at that point, it was one of those two options because I was struggling so bad with the, the emotions. And, um, of course, my writing was a lot of dark and, and um, depressing topics, of course, because I was trying to, you know, release all these emotions. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it caught the attention of my, my teacher who, you know, sent me to the school counselor who brought in a school psychologist. And I get an assessment done. And I think I was 15, 14, 15 at this time, um, where I get a diagnosis of being manic depressive bipolar. I have no idea at that age what that means at all. But again, another anchoring memory is just, you know, the school psychologist basically giving me a pat on the back saying everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. No follow up. Again, didn't receive any counseling. So to me, it was this pattern that was beginning in my life where everybody was telling me that everything was going to be okay, but it didn't feel okay. Yeah. You know, and I, I just, you know, didn't feel like I could depend on anybody. So it just kind of sunk me deeper into the the spot that I was in. Um, I was very, I was suffering from suicidal ideologies. I was cutting myself and, you know, and all this while I'm trying to maintain this persona of being okay, keeping this mask on that I'm okay and trying to work so hard to make my grandma proud because that was the only person I had left that I felt, you know, was, was stable in my life. So I did extremely well in school um, because school was so important to her. I worked so hard to get good grades, you know, straight A's, honor roll, you know, all these things just to ensure I was, you know, getting the validation that I needed from her because that's what I was seeking was the external validation. Mm-hmm. It had been an, an out for you. Um the more I concentrate on this, the less I have to think about the other. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So get through high school, um, decide that I'm going to move. You know, I wanted to get away from the the small area I, I grew up in, of course, because that was where all the memories are. That's where everybody knew. And I just wanted to go somewhere where no one knew me. I didn't want to be looked at as anything other than just a normal person even though I really wasn't feeling normal at the time. So moved away with my high school sweetheart, um, had three amazing children, got, and this is over a 13 year period, got, um, got married, um, but all the while still struggling, you know, trying to keep this mask on that I'm okay because I'd never learned any healthy coping skills. That's right. And, you know, didn't want to talk about it because I just wanted to forget that it was even happening or it had happened. 
Um, and of course, that's not a good um, coping mechanism because no matter where you go, there you are. I was still, didn't matter where I went, I was going to, you know, still have to deal with my issues. Well, if you don't know how to release, to get this stress and stuff out, the boiling point pressure point is finally going to uh, exceed and you're going to explode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, at that point, I was drinking heavily. Um, you know, slipped in, I kind of, you know, slipped into the alcoholic patterns that my father had. I, I don't know much about my father's childhood or upbringing, but um, mm-hmm. for me, it was just the, you know, if I could just numb it and and uh-huh. forget about it for a while, everything would be okay. But of yeah. course, you, know, you, you sober up and, and the, the issues are still there. So at the age of, I think I was 28, um, I started to slip into a really severe depression Um, where I knew that the suicidal ideologies were going to be acted on if I didn't make a change. Um, And I was absolutely terrified that my children were going to come home and find me dead at my house. Mm -hmm. Um, So I made a decision to leave my household. Um, I left my husband. I left my children because at that point I was not fit to be a mother to them. And um, this is a, this is another issue here that you know, for the better family life, you've got to get out of here so your daughters or children don't see how you are and how you're acting. And again, the possibility of suicide coming in. Um, they're tired of probably seeing you drinking. And so you're thinking of them to get out. Mm-hmm. How are they taking this? That you're abandoning them? They that, don't quite understand. I mean, yeah, I this, that was this is a different. Biggest... This would be a different topic, in other words. But I'm trying to yeah. Jump well, and that, that was a fear that I had because to me it was like just repeating that generational cycle, you know, where here I am now. I'm leaving my kids just like my parents left me, mm-hmm. right? Which just added to the chaos that was already in my mind. Now I was yeah. dealing with this overwhelming, you know disappointment in myself that I had mm-hmm. not broken the cycle that I wanted to so desperately break. Yes. Um, my kids were still, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to think when I, uh, it was 1998. So my daughter, my son was just a year and a half. My other okay. daughter was like four and my other daughter was like seven or eight. So they were still extremely young when I left. Yeah. And I mean, I was close by and stayed, I was at the house every day you know so it was um i wasn't void from their life but i wasn't at the home um and i thought again once again leaving was going to be the secret to everything but again all i did was i left um and because of all those emotions that got up brought up i sunk deeper into depression i drank more and i ended up getting out of my marriage and jumping in within a month to another relationship that was extremely dysfunctional. Um, and it went on, this was a relationship that went on for 13 years, but it was, um, marked with, um, domestic violence. Uh, he suffered from mental illness as well. And I always said that, thank God we were never in the same place at the same time. When I was down, he was up. When mm-hmm. he was down, I was up, you know, because if we had both been down at the same time, it would have probably been a, a really scary situation. Yeah. Um, I, again, kept just spiraling down and spiraling down until 
I was sitting, we had had a, a violent encounter and he'd left the house and I was sitting there on the couch and I said, I can't do this anymore. And um, I went into the bathroom, opened the, the um, cabinet and took every pill that was in there. Um, there was quite a few painkillers because he had injured his back. So he was on pain medication. So I just popped all the pills that I could find, went and sat on the couch and started writing goodbye letters to my children. So at least they knew I was thinking of them. Um, and of course, when you're sitting there and then you're in that moment, all I could think of was, I don't want to leave my kids in the final way. I'd already left them one way. I didn't want to leave them in the most final way. Yes. Um, so I called a cab. I went to the hospital and I remember sitting in the, the admissions seat and, you know, saying, you know, I'm here because I overdosed on pills. And that was it. That's the last thing I remember um, until I woke up with tubes down my throat. And um, it was at that moment that my mom came and stepped back. She had been in and out of out of my life. And um, she had stepped in and said, because of course she had been notified of what had happened. And she said, okay, you need to, you need to come out here. She, I was living in Ontario at the time, Ontario, Canada. She was in British Columbia, West Coast. She said, it's time to move out here. You need a change. So I packed everything and moved out West because again, mindset is that location changes everything. But of course, all I did was just relocate my problems. Yeah. And um, my partner who had, I had had this dysfunctional relationship with me six months after I moved, decided that he wanted to move out West, be with me. Of course, said everything was going to change. Um, but of course nothing changes because neither of us had gotten any, uh, done any of the work that we needed to do to improve our lives. So the, uh, the relationship just continued, continued to deteriorate. Um, it was July of 2014, 2015, he left. And, um, two months later I had the police show up at my place of business and told me that he had committed suicide. He had taken his own life. Okay. And um, I was devastated. I mean, I had, um, it was such an emo raw emotion. I mean, he had been in my children's lives for 13 and a half years. So he was like a father to my kids. And um, even as dysfunctional as the relationship was, there was still that codependent uh -huh. thing there. And um, I got really angry about it and of course all my friends are like it's okay you know anger is one of the stages of grief and I said no you don't understand I'm not angry that he took his own life I'm angry that he did it first oh okay and they were like okay you know that's, that's yeah. a hard concept for people to understand and <clears throat> oh yeah like, yeah yeah because here I am I'm left to pick up the pieces of everything that had happened and I see now I get to see the hurt and the pain and the heartache that's caused by it I mean you know that people are going to be hurt, but to actually have to go through it, I was so, so angry at that time. And so once again, I just try to put on this happy, I'm fine face and um, it worked okay for, you know, about a year. Um, but it just, I got to the point where I wasn't going to be able to, to keep that darkness at bay that I've been struggling with. And, I had purchased a house um, and at this time I had been seeing a psychologist and um, 
I was in the process of purchasing a, purchasing a house and I remember her being so excited for me because she thought that this was me making plans for the future. I was, you know, this is the first step. Now you're, you're making plans. And I, I'm sitting there in the seat and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm making plans. I'm making plans to kill myself next month. And the house is what I'm going to leave to my children because that's all I have of value. To leave. Mm -hmm. And um, so my plan had been made. I was actually going to the same location that my ex-partner had gone to. Um, I was going to shoot myself the same way he had done it. And um, I had the date and time set. I was going to go on a Monday morning because I always say, who likes Mondays, right? <laughs> no one does. So um, all I had to do, and I got to the point where the it was the weekend prior, all I had to do was get through this weekend. And I had bought tickets because a co-worker of mine had was going to this women's workshop. And she said, come with me. I don't want to go by myself. And I was like, okay didn't really want to go because you know i got nothing i'm not working on myself i'm like making yeah. it end it and um but i went because again i was so important to me to keep up this mask that i was okay and um went in on the saturday morning into this room full of women that are all you know so excited about their lives and the future that's laying ahead of and i'm like feeling nauseous because i'm like geez all i'm looking forward to is monday where i can just end it all and um, I'm sitting there and I heard a woman get on stage and she has alopecia, which means she's lost all of her hair. Mm -hmm. She was talking about self-love and how she had worked so hard on, on becoming, you know, loving herself. And I kind of heard this voice in the back of my head that said, well, you know, what about you? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, well, whatever. You know, I've never loved myself. I never can. No one ever loved me. So why would I start loving myself? But yeah, if no year, one else loved me, why should I take to me? If, if, if no one else thinks I'm worth loving, why should I think I'm worth loving? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> and so then the next speaker gets up on stage and she's talking about living with mental health and depression and how she had learned to live with it. And had gone out and was now living a, a, a fantastic life. And I'm sitting here going, oh, my gosh. I can hear that little voice in the back of my head again going, well, what about you? And I'm like, I don't think I could ever live with this. Like, how, mm -hmm. how, how do you just live with this? How do you just accept it as being part of your life? And then the last speaker got on stage and his name was Jared Morrison. And he talked about living with mental health issues, um, addiction, and how he had spent you know, a year working on finding the perfect combination of pain, uh, pain medication and alcohol that he could take so that he could die and make it look like it was an accident because he worked in life insurance and he knew if he committed That's suicide, right. his kids wouldn't get his life insurance money. Uh -huh. And one evening he found that perfect mix and it just happened to be on an evening when his children were visiting. So here he is, he's slowly passing away with his children there. And he hears this voice going, no, not, not like this. You've got more to do. Mm -hmm. And he got on the phone, he called for help, he changed his life. And now his purpose was going out, sharing his stories, sharing his struggles in order to help impact other people. And that voice that had been in the back of my head was almost screaming at me now going, what about you? Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, inside I'm sitting here going, you know, like if he's sharing his story, like I think of everything I've gone through, 
What a powerful story I could share. What if I could take all this crap that's happened and I could take it and it could help someone else? And it was in that moment that I went, you don't, I, I can love myself. I can love myself. I can love my story. And I can love my depression because it's not going away. It's going to be here for the uh -huh. rest of my life. It's that friend that you hate at times, but that you know is always going to be part of your life. And I went, this is, this is always going to be part of it. Let's take this and let's go out there and save someone's life. I had had a, a, a part where I, I felt a little bit of guilt not being able to reach out and help my ex-partner. Um, because he had reached out two days before he took his life. And I was like, no, I don't want to, you know, have anything to do with you at this point. Mm -hmm. And so I'd carried a little bit of guilt and I had said, maybe we can take this and we can help save a life that you couldn't save. And so then I went on a mission of going, you know what? I'm, I'm choosing today to love me. I don't need anybody else's validation. I don't need anybody else's love. I'm enough. And the moment I decided I was enough, everything changed. Yeah, I, I, I can see that uh, finally, finally realizing that you're worth loving, even if you're the only one who thinks so, mm -hmm. you know, it's just finally that affirmation that, yeah, but I'm here to stay now. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. I mean, some it, <clears throat> we, we, look at, we look at ourselves through eyes that no one else looks at us at. Uh, well, know, the like, most rewarding things in life is not doesn't come easy. So no, everything everything no. is hard. It's worth going after to, you know, build your self esteem, your self confidence. Mm -hmm. You know, everything else involved. And so, yeah, the the, the it's not easy. No, if anybody says if anybody thinks it's easy, they haven't been through what you've been through, or they haven't been through with somebody else. They haven't gone deep enough, fell far enough landed hard enough to be able to say this was hard, but it was well worth it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, and it's, it just was a, a simple shift in, in my mindset, shift in changing my perspective to instead of looking at this as, because I mean, I couldn't go back and change anything. There was nothing no. I could, I couldn't go back and change what my parents did. They did the best they could with what they had. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I let my grandparents, you know, like my whole perspective, changed and that's been the work that I've done you know I I look back at my grandmother and I go she did the best that she could with the tools that she had in her toolbox even my grandfather um I I bear no I've, I've gotten to the point where I bear no ill will towards anybody in that situation I mean I look at I don't know what happened in his life that created the monster that he was because I mean mm -hmm. it came out afterwards that he'd actually sexually abused and raped my own mother as well you know oh, wow. so this was this was a pattern for him. So I, you know, I harbored a lot of anger and resentment with my mother for years for allowing us to go live there when she knew what his pattern was. Yeah. But, I would think that part of your healing over all this, I would think part of, and you mentioned here a little bit that you've had to learn to forgive your monsters in life, your evil um, again, some of it just because they didn't understand, didn't know because they didn't have the proper tools, like you said, in their toolbox, uh -huh. but you've had to do a lot of forgiving. And, and forgiving myself. That I was, uh, it was probably there we the go. I've been waiting on that one. Yeah, I've been waiting it, it was, I am huge that, uh, 
the Bible tells us, everybody tells us, we've got to forgive people who we perceive that have hurt us, harmed us, you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. we have to forgive ourselves just as much, if not more, mm-hmm. for the mistakes that we allow to happen or that we did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we've got to forgive ourselves just as much or even more Absolutely. than forgiving other people. Yeah. And it's, it's for me, it was harder to for, forgive myself than it was mm-hmm. to forgive other people. You know, like, again, I don't you don't that, think you're worthy enough for this forgiveness to be able exactly. to move on in life. Exactly. You know, like I looked at the impact that that my choices had on my children's lives. Um, you know, both of my daughters um, suffer from mental illness. Um, and I remember sitting in a room um, with some social workers with my older daughter. And I remember sitting at this table saying, look, I did the best I could at the time with the tools I had. And I thought it was like another one of those light bulb moments where I went, there you go. Like you did the best that you could and you have to accept that and move on from it because and, beating and, yourself up about every perceived wrong that you've committed or every mistake mm-hmm. that you've made or every bad choice that you've ever made because we make them. That's just life. And but we're going to continue making them as long as right. we live. I mean, I, I, I sit here and I, I'm, I'm, I'm always going to be an imperfect person. I'm never, there's no such thing as if we, we have this desire to be this perfect person living this perfect life and it's a fallacy it's not possible so embracing and accepting the imperfection takes such a weight off of us because we say you know what okay i didn't do that perfect but i you know i'm still doing the best that i can and that's it's so huge and it's so empowering yes and learn from it and move on i'm not saying it's irrelevant i'm not saying it wasn't painful but you can learn from it Forgive yourself, forgive others, move on, and don't repeat if you don't have to. Absolutely. So Absolutely. And one time I got in a fight with this guy, I was, I was like 12 years old, and it was our neighborhood Fonzie uh, back in the day. He was 16, and we looked up to him. Him and I got in a fight. Here I am, four years younger. I mean, he's beating the crap out of me. And my dad is watching on the front porch. The guy lets me up. And I hit him in the jaw, and he gets down and started beating me again. My dad's sitting on the front porch. He guy lets me up. I hit him again. Then he gets down and started beating me again. And he tells my dad, said, I'm not going to fight him. I continue, but I'm not going to let him hit me. So finally let me up. I quit and everything, so he left. My dad says, well, I admire you, you know, wanting to stand up and fight for yourself. But I'm going to let you know that no need to get your butt kicked more than once if you don't have to. And same thing in life. Mm-hmm. Learn from it. Do your best not to repeat. Not to say we won't repeat it. Because mm-hmm. if we're repeating it, we hadn't learned the lesson exactly yet. And it may take us two or three times to get our butts kicked in life to be able to move forward. Absolutely. And, and that's why you see the patterns that keep repeating in life, right? Like we keep we keep asking ourselves, oh my gosh, why does this keep happening to me? When we don't realize that it's because of the choices that we're making. It's mm-hmm. like until you decide, you you shift that one little degree change and you go, okay, I'm not going to go this way. I'm going to go this way. Then things will change. But if you don't make a change, you're going to keep repeating these things over and over and over again. And as we go, as you were mentioning about the tools in your toolbox, as we're going on, we build up a better toolbox to be able to help later on in life. And again, as I said earlier, one reason we're only the big ball of dirt is to help the next person. And so, like you said, if you're going out 
having your own women's uh, retreat and everything to help them empower themselves. Just think of what you've done to help someone. So I'm so glad you were not successful in this suicide attempt. And I'm not going to say that I'm perfect. I, I attempted suicide three times in three days. That's how bad I wanted out. And I was found the last time not breathing. And they sent me to the hospital and put me in a hyperbaric chamber. And then I was in the hospital for seven weeks. And all that led into eventually with this podcast. So I mean, I know. Amazing, right? Like it's well, when you realize that really there's a bigger plan out there for for you when you start really taking the eyes off of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that was huge for me because I, I realized that this man who had spoke that who shared a story and saved my life, had he not decided to go out there and share his story, I wouldn't be here today. Have you and had I someone remember- come up to you uh, coming back to your story thinking you to have you I've had one person one time that uh, and not to say that I've never heard anything else, but this is the one that sticks out in my head. Uh, I got my neck broke playing football. It was told I'd never walk again, not move from my neck down stuff, putting a nursing home at age of 19. But I got out and I'm speaking and it's one place. One woman comes up to me, says, I want to thank you. I don't know why I'm here. I wasn't planning on coming to this, uh, but I knew you are having this event. So I came to it and I'm glad I did hear your, your message is going to help me. Well, I got an email the following, following week from the uh, director to set up everything this woman was given like six months to live. And the message I gave about living your best life, she was going to use it for her last six months. And wow. So, I mean, to hear someone else come out like that. So I'm just wondering, have you, have you got validation from others? I'm sure you have, but then, yeah. I mean, this one just sticks out, you know, compared to others. I actually, um, after that workshop, I approached the lady who had organized that workshop. And I said to her, it's like, I would really like to come speak at your workshop next year. And she's like, okay, right. Like we'll talk, I'll, I'll do an interview. And, um, and she actually brought me in at once she heard my story. She was like, yeah, you need to to tell this. And um, I remember ending my talk that, that, um, at that event and saying that all I wanted was if I could save one person's life, every experience that I had had, a decade of, of sexual abuse, uh, over a decade of domestic abuse, 40 years of, of mental illness. If I could save one life, it's all been worth it. And I finished my talk and I was getting ready to leave the room. And I had a lady walk up to me and say, you know how you wanted to save a life today? I just want you to know you did. And she turned and walked away. And I get, I still, I got goosebumps right now. I get goosebumps every time I hear that story. And the MC at the event, actually, I've been working with him uh, coaching over the last uh, three, four months. And he said, what you don't know is that actually three people messaged the organizer of that event and said that they had been contemplating ending their life. And that after they heard you spoke, they felt a renewed purpose to be here. Yes. And I was like, it's all, but had it only been one person, you know, had it, had no one approached me. I still would, you know, be doing it and feeling it because I know how many years I sat back and listened to other people's stories, just taking it all in, you know, but slowly letting the the impact creep in, you know, and yeah. Well, just keep remembering 
we don't have to have that validation, even though it's nice, because mm-hmm. that way we know we are helping. But mm-hmm. there's going to be times, like you said, three people that you didn't know, they contacted your event planner and mm-hmm. they come back later to tell, tell you. But if those three wouldn't have contacted them, you did help and affect their life. Mm-hmm. And you may not have known about it. So mm-hmm. I'm saying, so keep up the good work. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, as much as, and I love the validation just so I know that what I'm doing is right. Mm-hmm. But I got to keep reminding myself, I don't have to know it though. And mm-hmm. I, we just trust that it's helping people. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and I mean, I may not impact a person today sharing my story, but you know what? Tomorrow I could go out and share my story and impact five lives. Charlene, a hundred years from now, they're saying this stuff on the internet's there forever. So a hundred years from now, someone is going to find this thing, whatever it's called in a hundred years, and they're going to listen to your story and you're going to help someone else in a hundred years from now. So (laughs) don't be surprised if it's 101 or 99 years, but somewhere again, it's supposed supposed to be on there forever. Now, somebody's going to happen to come run through it and you're going to, you're going to transform their life. And just be uh, blessed as well in hundred years. So, awesome. yeah, it's all about ripples. That's kind of my my theme. Is like you know we throw a pebble in the pond. We never know how far ripples are going to go, but they ripple out there, and and we don't. Oh, you made me think, and I can't think of her name. I had her on my show, and that's her theme is the mm-hmm. ripple in the pond, and yeah. she uh, so you can order a uh, stone or whatnot. It's made out of some type of metal and mm. it has a, a word of encouragement on that one stone that represents your ripple to share people, mm. whether it's encouragement, faith, love. I forgot to, it's five words. And uh, yeah, it means you, you buy it and she sends it to you and you don't know what you got until you uh, open it up. But yeah, her theme is uh, the ripple yeah. in the pond. Yeah. yeah. So, awesome. all right. Charlie, man, you've been amazing. Uh, this, this is awesome. I'm sorry you went through everything, uh, but I'm glad you found yourself and found your purpose and helping others. Again, we're talking with Charlene Madden, a uh, wellness coach and empowerment women's women empowerment uh, workshop organizer, coordinator. So um, y'all need to hit up Charlene to come to your event. So, Charlene, go ahead and tell us your uh, website, social medias, and whatnot so people can find you. Um, you can find me on Facebook at uh, Charlene Madden Speaker. Um, Instagram, Charlene Ann Madden. Um, my event, I can see it kind of there in the background. It's called Ignite Your Life. So, you can find and follow the event. Uh, last year, we were virtual. So, depending on where the world is at this year coming up, who knows? Uh, it could be virtual. So, I've had people from... Uh, all over the world coming in and, and taking part in the workshop. So you can check it out at Ignite Your Life. So Good deal. And I'll put those information down in the show notes for others to find you uh, later on as well. Charlene, thank you for being here. This has been awesome and a blessing for me. Again, I figure if no one else gets anything, I'm getting everything. So uh, hopefully, hopefully somewhere along the line, someone else is collecting this information as well. So, well, And hey. thank you. I want to thank you for, for having this platform. And um, well, and again, over my issues, uh, I figured uh, I saw a psychologist for a year, like you said, you had that you did, you saw one, and one of his things was 
I needed to write a book. I needed to get stuff out. I need to get into speaking. Toastmasters, the National Speakers Association says I need to get a platform. I need to get out there, share my message to help other people. And this is led from speaking, book, going to events, YouTubing, now podcasting. And so we're building as we go along. And this is part of my my way of giving back to people is allowing them to have this platform to get out there so they can help other people. So it's my way of giving back thank as well. Thank you for creating the ripples you're creating. All right. Well, thank you. Now, Charlene, we noted that uh, there's people out there struggling today. And if you can leave them with a powerful message to help them get through today, that's going to be a blessing. If I had to say anything, I would just say, love yourself. That made the hugest impact on my life, knowing that, you know what, you are worth it. You do deserve to be here. You do have value and you can create impact. Your story, just like my story, could impact someone else's life. So don't give up. If you're sitting in the dark, reach out. There are so many places, so many um Places online, phone calls you can make, I think 211. And if you feel alone, message me. I will sit, I, I say to everybody, I will come and sit in the dark with you as long as you need me to. And when you are ready, I will pick you up and help you step into the light. So don't ever feel alone. You're not alone. Amen, sister. Appreciate the good, powerful word. And yes, you're not alone. People got there. Again, there's plenty of stuff on this internet that you can find help. Just do the Google search, find a phone number, lie to the people you're on the phone. If you don't want to give your real name, tell them your name is James Purdue. Tell them your name is Charlene. They don't care. Mm -hmm. They just want to help you. And so go from there. All right. They, be sure to share this out to someone you know that could use some hope, some inspiration, motivation, help them get through a struggling. And be sure to do yourself a favor and a blessing. Help someone else. Bless them with what you have and everything. Everybody else do something today, tomorrow, something next week that's going to help you persevere past your paralysis. Thanks for listening to the Professor of Perseverance podcast. For motivation, inspiration, and encouragement. For more information, go to Facebook at Professor of Perseverance. Visit the website at ProfessorofPerseverance.com and view the YouTube channel, Dr. James Perdue, Professor of Perseverance.